Let us open word first. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for your love for us daily. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning and your compassion never fails. Be with David this morning as he gives us the word and also brought this morning. Thank you that we can worship freely. Only because of your grace. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.
provoked to response. <coughs> Anybody? God is for us. God is for us. And that's, that's an incredible statement. God is for us. He's against us. Uh, I felt a little convicted is the right word. I, I get too wrapped around the actual about current events. Yes. Our country. And uh, we do. He yes. remember this a little more than you know. Exactly. Current events. Um, you can pick any week of the year, but uh, this has been an incredible week for current events. And we need to, to remember that God's purpose is not thwarted, that he has a plan, that plan is for the redemption of the world, um, and there's nothing that can separate us from that. That God, before the foundation of the world, planned the redemption. Planned the, the way that he would bring us to him, into his presence. Um, even after uh, a great fall, not just a slight transgression, but a complete uh, fall from the grace of God. And so I, when I read that, uh, and I, I frequently read this passage because I have written in, uh, in my margin notes, I... The way that I select Bibles, by the way, other than the, the translation, is I look for how much room around the edge I have to write. Because I'm one of those guys that writes in the Bible. So those of you whose Bible is perfect and would be offended by writing in the Bible, well, I'm not that. So anyway, I have my margin note here. Uh, shelter from the storm. And uh, a statement that at the lowest point in my life, all the things that were true about me God knew. And that's both past, present, and future. All the things that are true about me, God knew. So think about all of those things that you would never share with anybody. Right? You know about yourself. God knows that. God knows that. It says, God knew. And He loves us more than we can know. In, in the midst of where we find ourselves separated from Him, he loves us so much that he would send his son to save us. And so when I read this passage, it gives me hope because I have a little bit more insight as to who I am than you guys do. And, and it gives me hope to know that God, um, there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ. That's what it says. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, including Supreme Court decisions, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, just kind of keep that in mind as we set our, our focus this morning on understanding uh, Christ as high priest because that's the section of Hebrews that we're in where did we leave off last week end of chapter six. the end of chapter 6 and who can give me a recap by the end there they were saying that these people should be teachers rather than students rather than just passing over the old things over and over again they should be going out and teaching yep and that we should be so transformed that we participate in the evangelical mission that God is about doing in, in saving the world. <clears throat> I'll just quickly read 
because there was a strong admonition. Um, and then there's there's the promise of God that's put forth. And we want to look a, bit, a little bit closer at that promise this morning. We also want to look a little bit closer at the role of the high priest and how Christ is high priest. I'm going to start in chapter 6, verse 9. And I'm going to read through uh, the end of the chapter here. It says, But beloved... We are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust as to forget your work in the love which you have shown towards his name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath give, uh, given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which, is it in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. For Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So I read through that. What kinds of, uh, what popped out? What kinds of phrases caused you to ask questions? What is the author talking about here? Anybody? Pardon? He's, he's introducing the idea or continuing on the idea that he's introduced as Christ as our high priest. But what is what is the high priest's uh, role? He's an intercessor. And what the high priest does is he brings the people um, into the presence of God. So as an intercessor, he's the one that that um, facilitates the relationship, right? So if if uh, what is the basis of your your life, your physical life today? What is the basis of that life? Okay, um, what makes you an animate object as opposed to the rock that's sitting out there? In the... God. Pardon? You, you have the breath of life, is what a lot of us would say. We have the breath of life, right? So every breath that you take is an expression of the life that is within you. Right? And the way that... Um, how many of you have had first aid? In this class, a few. 
What are the What are the first things they teach you as an acronym in, in first aid? Do no further harm. Well, do no further harm. <laughs> <laughs> There's what they call the ABCs. Airways. Breathing. Circulation. Bleeding. Mm -hmm. Circulation. Right? So the first thing you want to deal with is if somebody's not, not breathing. The next thing you want to deal with is if they're bleeding. And then the, finally you want to check and make sure that the blood is circulating if it's there. Right? ABC. So when we look at what the basis of life is, it's breathing and having life blood and having that circulate throughout and nourish all of the aspects of our being, right? And so what the high priest uh, is doing is he's doing that on a spiritual realm. He's doing spiritual first aid. So in our when we understand the basis of life, all life comes from God. So God is, he gives us the breath of life, he causes um, our heart to beat, he causes um, the blood to actually nourish every cell in our body, right? And in that sense, we have a relationship with God. And we understand that severing that relationship means death. That you're separated, the life is separated from the body, right? That's not what God wants. He wants life in the body. And the same thing is true in the spiritual realm. In that, um, if we're not connected to God, if we're separated from Him, we're separated from life. And what the high priest is there for is to help mediate, to bring us together in relationship with God. And so, the high priest in the cultic practice of the Jews would once a year go in and offer atonement for the sin of the people. Because that sin separated them from God. And this symbolically was a way of showing what was occurring in the heavenly realm. Of how God was providing a way for people to actually come back into his presence. To be joined together with him in life. And so we understand that if he's going to talk about the high priest, he's got to talk about life. And he's got to talk about relationship. And that's where... He, he makes this transition statement. He said, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and I will surely multiply you. So, what is the promise that God made to Abraham? A people, a place, and a presence. That God... God would have his people, in other words, his, they would be in relationship with him. They would be where he is, in his place. And in fact, he would be with them always. Right? So he would be, uh, when we read Revelation and we get to the, the new creation at the end of uh, our understanding of history, um, there is no need for a light in the city because God provides the light itself. His presence is all that we need uh, to be complete. And so uh, that's the promise that's given to Abraham. It's a promise of uh, not just um, physical life like a flower that grows up and blossoms and then withers and dies and is no more, but rather that that life would be together with God in continuity for all time, eternal life.
That's the promise that was given to Abraham. And that this promise was not just given to Abraham, but it was given to all people. Now we understand that there was also a temporal aspect of that promise, and that Abraham was in a place called Ur, which I don't know if I can get to it here. I'd have to go to a much larger map, so I won't even try. Um, and that he was in uh, a different part of the Fertile Crescent, and God said, I want you to go to this place here, this place called Canaan. And that this is a place of promise. Now, if you've ever seen pictures of this place, or if you've ever been there, you wouldn't think that this is the place of promise. Because um, Karen likes to tell this story about the angels that were given charge over the rocks of the earth. And that, uh, uh, go ahead and tell the joke real quick, Karen. Oh. When the Lord was creating the world, he gave these angels all the rocks to spread out amongst the world. One angel went off in each direction, and they're busily putting the rocks out there. This one angel's load was so heavy, he kind of got starved a little bit, and then he thought, I'm getting too tired, I'll just dump them all right here. And that was in Israel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've ever been there, you understand why that joke is funny, because there are a lot of rocks. And, and there's, you, you would think, how can anything live here? And yet they raise sheep on the side of these rocky hills, and they eat this grass that you can't see unless you're right up next to it, little tiny pebbles. And the sheep will just eat that stuff, and they grow and are fat, and, and uh, they do agriculture there. Um, back to the place where Jesus was born, Bethlehem, uh, means house of bread, because they would grow grains there and, and produce bread and stuff like that. You look at this place and say, how did they do this? And, uh, and yet, that's where Abraham was told to go, to this place that was uh, a promise of God. And he went. He went. Why did Abraham go? I mean, he had everything where he was at. He had money. He had inheritance. He had land. Pardon? He believed God. He believed that what God promised was better than what the world could promise. So he left. And he went to this place and he got there and he said, oh. <laughs> right? And, uh, and he, he brought some folks with him. He brought nephew, Lot. And in fact, Lot probably looked and said the same thing. He said, oh. And, uh, they got to the point where Lot said, well, you know, this land, you can't grow much on it. If you're going to have sheep, I can't be here. So Abraham said, well, just look any direction you want. You pick the land you want, you go there and you take it. So Lot took what to the world would look really good. He took the valley, which was lush because the Jordan River ran through it. And so Lot goes down here, and Abraham comes down here to the edge of the desert. Um, it's right at the south part of the hill country. A uh, place called the Negev, which means south, and is right on the edge of the great wilderness of Paran, which is uh, going on down into the Sinai Peninsula. Um, and there's nothing there, there's not even little nubbins. And so Abraham is in this place called uh, Beersheba. And God reiterates a promise to him, because Abraham did this. And you read about it in Genesis where God tells him this promise a couple of times. And Abraham's looking, you know, I'm sure he's looking. Uh, so if you look in Genesis 12, where before he gets his new name, uh, 
chapter 12 of Genesis says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be blessed, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And uh, it talks about then the, the journey of Abraham. Well, a little bit later, um, Abraham is promised a son because he's saying, well, how can all the you know, nations of the world be blessed through me? I don't have any children. So after these things, we read in chapter 15, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said to God, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. That was one of his servants. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Looking at the stars of the heavens, that's how many folks are going to be your descendants. Hmm. Then he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. So Abraham, and he was an old guy at this time, he was 75, so how many in here are 75? Okay. Imagine God showing up and saying, you can have a kid. <laughs> 75 years old, God says, you're going to have a child. And Abraham believed. And God reckoned that to him as righteousness. That belief in God was, um, in God's sight, the right thing. Reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. Well, we go on in the story a little bit further through Genesis, and you get to uh, chapter 22 of Genesis. And the story continues on, and we understand we, we talked last week about the battle of the great kings. Uh, the great kings of the day, there were uh, these kings in the surrounding area, and they came, they came against the kings down here in the, in the valley. And the reason why is because, hey, this is purely economic, right? Um, if you want to be the greatest nation on earth, you take over those who got the resources. So um, the kings banded together. So politics is afoot. And they uh, created a, a consortium of kings and uh, mustered their armies. And they came down and they went to battle against these kings and they won. And when they won against those kings, they took booty, it says. They took... Uh, they took the goods of the land. And Abraham hears about this because that means they took Lot. Because one of the valuable things that people could take in those days was other people as slaves. Because, you know, they didn't have war machines or they didn't have tractors and stuff like that. They had people to pull those tractors. They didn't have machines, so people were the machines. You take your slaves, that guarantees you some return. You know, you feed them a little bit of grain and they go out and produce for you ten, ten times more. So Lot gets taken and these guys um, are in the process of splitting up the booty and Abraham down here hears about it and he at this point has become uh, what God said he would be. He's becoming a great man in the land. Uh, he's got some wells down there. He's got some sheep. He's got uh, 
several hired men that work for him. Not, uh, I mean, they're of the of his household. So in a sense, they're slaves, but they're they're hired men that he pays them. And he takes these hired men uh, as an army, and he goes after his son Lot. Well, the kings hear about it. They run all the way up north here to this area of, of Dan, actually a little bit further north here. And uh, in fact, I could probably go ahead and pull this down a little bit. Oh, come on, you silly thing. Try that. There we go. Um, so they run all the way up to here because this is uh, a stronghold. You're getting into the hill country. Um, further north is Mount Hermon. And uh, this is very rugged country. And so if you're going to uh, defend yourself against an oncoming army, that's what you want to do. You want to get into the rocks. And so Abraham comes up here with his hired men, a small band of folk, and he uh, comes at them at night. He's a crafty guy. And so he actually puts them on the run. And they run as far as Damascus, all the way over here. And he finally, you know, he, he routes the armies that came against the, the other kings. Takes all of the treasure back, including his nephew Lot. And he tromps all the way back down from this Damascus area, all the way back down, uh, probably along the patriarchal highway here, comes down through the Jordan Valley and he runs into the king of, of Sodom. And the king of Sodom wants to make an alliance with him. He says, hey, you're a rich and powerful guy. Uh, let's make an alliance. And Abraham says, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Whatever's yours is yours. You take it. I don't want it. Um, but I will take Lot because he's my nephew. And so uh, he does that. He basically dismisses the king. Uh, no penalty, no foul. And uh, he runs into a guy named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, it says, is a uh, priest of the Most High God. So we would interpret that as he's a priest of Yahweh. Now, how does God have priests uh, apart from the establishment of his, his people, the Jews, and the priesthood through Aaron, who's later to come, many years down the road. Um, and the descendants of Levi, who is the son of Jacob, and Jacob is two generations away from, uh, from Abraham, because it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? And then Levi. So the, the priesthood is way in the future, and, uh, and yet he runs into a priest of the Most High God who um, makes his abode this area called Salem which uh, today is called Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so, uh, which uh, the word Salem and in, in, uh, our word Salem is the word Shalom comes from the, the root of the word that we would uh, interpret as priest, or I mean as peace. So he's a, a king of peace. And we read about that, that this guy is going to be a, a king of peace. And we're going to read that when we come to Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, he also, um, the name that he has, um, Melech is the word for king, and Zedek is the word for righteousness, so he's also a king of righteousness. And Abraham meets this guy out in the desert. And when he meets him in the desert, um, down here, uh, he recognizes who he is, 
and he gives a tenth of everything that he has to this this priest. And the priest blesses him. So Abraham, who's a great man, is actually recognizing someone greater than himself that is in communion with God. And that that person blesses him. So that's the role of the high priest. One who stands between man and God and brings a relationship together. Right? That's who Melchizedek was for Abraham. Well, Abraham goes on in his life from there after having um, done this battle and goes back down here and having had the promise that, uh, that he would have a son says Negev down here, so this is pretty close to Barashev right here. Um, so that's where Abraham's hanging out, and then, lo and behold, he has a son. We understand there's some intrigue that happens. He tries to bring it about on his own through his handmaiden, and uh, that doesn't work out so well. He gets a son called Ishmael. Yes, sir? Yeah. <clears throat> um, sorry, back to uh, Malchizedek. Yep. Um, so my question is, does Abraham give him a tenth or a tithe? Yep. Because he wanted to and get a blessing. Or did Melchizedek want to bless him? And then he says, you know what, I'm going to give you a portion of what I have. There's a huge difference. Yes. One would be um, I'm trying to gain favor with God by giving. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to God is given, and I just am so totally blown away that hey, what I have is yours. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's really important, I think, because um, if Malchizedek did it for a tenth, <laughs> you know, right. then it's a whole different kind of thing. And so, in other words. I, and I don't remember the story, but can you expound on that just a little bit? Well, uh, interestingly, Why the Why? interestingly, the motives are not given. No. <coughs> I think it's safe to say that was not a televangelist, though. No, he's not a televangelist. But in some way, um, he was distinctive. Abraham recognized here is one who is in communion with the Most High God. And his desire is to bring people into communion with the Most High God. In other words, he was a priest. Um, so Abraham recognized it. Now, we're not told much about Melchizedek. And we're not told much about how he recognized him. Um, whether he had some kind of priestly garb on or whether he just, you know, we don't, we don't know. Um, we also don't know much about um, the motivation of Abraham. However, when you hear about the encounter with Melchizedek, it's right after the king of Sodom comes and makes Abraham an offer that's hard to refuse. So Abraham is offered all sorts of power, all sorts of wealth, because where is the power and the wealth of that day? It's down here. The very place that Abraham let God decide. 
where he was going to go, and it wasn't there. So Abraham had already said, no, what's yours is yours. I don't want the world. He was content with what God had given him. So not knowing the motive, I would say that Abraham, but you see the chronology as it plays out, I would say that Abraham wasn't going, if he passed up on the deal from the king of Sodom, what would a tenth buy him with this guy who is from this little town in the hills here? Um, and at this point in time, I mean, you know, there's this spit that comes up to kind of a high hill that's surrounded by hills. Today we call it Mount Moriah, and that's what we're going to get to next year, chapter 22 of Genesis. Um, but it was nothing. I mean, it was, you know, if that's what you've got, it's nothing compared to what Sodom was. Sodom was a major trading center. So I can't imagine that the motivation would have been one of trying to get a blessing from this guy. Because that would be a very worldly thing. So by definition, he wanted to give back, and all he had yeah. was his stuff. So. Yeah. Exactly. That's the way I would interpret that, that, that Abraham's motive was pure and not one of self-gain. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. It doesn't say and Abraham had a pure heart and recognized that you know this was bad and this was good. Rather, we infer that from the story. But the whole order of Melchizedek, which is... <laughs> well, interesting. Yeah, we have very, very little said about Melchizedek. There's this brief encounter that happens. Abraham gave him a tenth. Now, we understand that that, that story, as insignificant, you would pass over it uh, until you get to the Psalms, and you recognize that several hundred years later, probably on the order of a century, um, someone took the time to write down, probably on the order of 1,500 years, someone took the time to write down what the significance of this encounter with Melchizedek was in Psalm 110. If you go to Psalm 110, and this is the other reference to Melchizedek that you have, and this is what the Hebrew or the author of Hebrews is using. So he's letting the Bible interpret the Bible. So who is this guy Melchizedek? Let's let the Bible tell us. It says in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch out, will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That phrase is what the author of Hebrews is jumping on. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, this, this psalm was also quoted by Jesus. And if you go to the last word that Jesus had to say to the Pharisees is in Matthew, <clears throat> Matthew 22. Take it to Matthew 22. And uh, we, we actually, Karen and I put this on as an engraving on uh, a 
watch that we gave to our, our son, <coughs> son-in-law um, as he graduated from law school just a few, few weeks back. Uh, I'll start in chapter 22, verse 34. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Notice that there's your mind is involved here. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Now what Christ was pointing out there, what Jesus was pointing out, is the two uses of the word Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. Now he would have been speaking in a language, either Aramaic or uh, Hebrew, to these guys, probably Hebrew, because he was speaking to the teachers of the law. And he, they would have known the specific distinction that he was making because the first word, Lord, is the word that cannot be spoken. Um, it's the what we call today the tetragrammaton. It's the, the I am identification of, of God. And God met Moses in the middle of the desert and he met him at the burning bush. And God spoke to him from the burning bush. And Moses said, who shall I tell the people that you are? And God said, tell them that I am sent you. I am means that he is self-existent, that he has life within himself. No one brought him into existence. He has always existed. He's God. The, the, the reason he said I am is because it's the, uh, the verb that means to be or being. And so only God is being. Only God is life. Now he can give that to whom he chooses, which we read about in John chapter 5. That through the Son, God gives life to whom he chooses. You read that in John chapter 5, verse 22, I think it is. Um, but that name, the Tetragrammaton, we put some vowels in so that we can pronounce it. And it's the, the name Yahweh. Or if you were to say it in German, you'd say Yehovah, Jehovah. Right? And the vowels in that uh, tetragrammaton actually come from the second word that we use for God, which is also in this verse. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, which is the word Adonai. Now, Adonai was the name of God that could be spoken, and it meant God uh, in the presence of his people, such that you would talk to him like I'm talking to you, face to face. And they took the vows from Adonai and they put that in Yahweh, and that's how we pronounce it today. But um, so he says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. What is Jesus saying when he quotes that song? He's saying that there is a God who can actually be in the presence of men and in the presence of the transcendent God. At the same time, and he is made ruler. He is the God-man. He is the Christ. That was his question. Who is the Christ? 
if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So he's asking them the puzzle question of all time. How can God be man? This is the response of the Pharisees. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. (laughs) Do you know what the next question that they asked Jesus was? The high priest... Yeah, the high priest at Jesus' trial uh, before the, the Sanhedrin was asked, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And he finally spoke, because he was silent up to this point. And what did he say? He, he said, it is as you say, I am the Christ. He said, and after this you will see the Son of Man coming in his glory in the clouds. And he was quoting Daniel 7.13, which is the very transaction that this Psalm 110 is talking about. Daniel understood it. The author of the psalm understood it. Um, Jesus understood it. The Pharisees understood it. Right? That there would be one who is God and man. And when we read that psalm, he says that this one who is God and man, the Lord has sworn, he's given an oath, And he's not going to change his mind about it. You're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So there was 1,500 years of tradition about Melchizedek. What do we know about Melchizedek? Very little. But the author of Hebrews is going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Because there are some assumptions in Psalm 110. If, one, you can have a priest that's not from the line of Levi. You can have one whose role is to bring the relationship of God and man together who is not from the tribe of Levi. That was a big shock to him. And that if there is such a priest, that priest has to be an eternal priest. You are a priest, uh, he says, you are a priest forever. That it's not an appointment that is bound by the number of days in your life. So that's an assumption that's in there. Um, So a Levitical priest, just to tell you a little bit about Levitical priests. um, When they come into the priesthood, they're they're appointed uh, into the priestly role by virtue of being of the line of Aaron. Right? who was of the tribe of Levi. So the Levites were given uh, a portion uh, of the inheritance from all of the people, that they were the tribe that would serve in the temple. So they they were the ones that carried the tabernacle in the desert, that made the different ornaments and the curtains and all of these different things. They were the ones that were the choir. I mean, the the Levites were the, the temple's servants. So today you might think of it in a a church like ours as uh, the groundsman is part of the church church body and organization, right? That's what a Levite would be. So the person who's, you know, unclogging the toilet has as much um, right to share in that inheritance as the one who's delivering the message from the pulpit. Maybe they're the same one. Um, So... That's what the Levites were. Well, then within the Levites, there's a special group of people that were descendants of Aaron, and they were the priests. And then among the priests, they would 
get together and they would have a, a, a poll of the, of the elders and they'd say, okay, who do you think is the most holy? <laughs> and they would select who they thought was the most holy because it turned out that Aaron's sons didn't do such a swell job. <laughs> right? So um, they had to figure out, okay, well, you can't, you know, Aaron was a high priest, well, it's, there are more priests than just that. Who's going to be the high, high priest? And uh, so they would figure out who's the most holy. And when they got to a point of decision as to who was actually going to serve inside the Holy of Holies, they would cast lots. But sometimes there would be an appointment made, and that appointment would be good for the life of the person. Um, so in the case of, of uh, when Jesus was walking the earth, who was the high priest? Remember? Caiaphas was a high priest. And who was Caiaphas? He was related to the previous high priest. Annas. And so he was he was uh, related. So uh, he was son-in-law, I believe. Is that right? Or was he a son? I can't remember. But there was, there was a relationship between Caiaphas and Annas. And so men had corrupted the system such that they kind of passed it down um, within the family until the family so discredited themselves that they would cast lots for another family and then they would become the high priest and became passed down. But at the end of that person's life, now Annas was still alive. And he was the previous high priest, so Caiaphas had come in. Um, but it was, you know, he had done his days and he was at the end of his days. He was no longer in that role. So he was not a high priest forever. And in fact, his days were going to end because it's appointed once for man to die. And after that comes judgment. And the author of Hebrews is going to tell us that here in a little bit. And so if you're going to have a priest forever, it has to be on this order of Melchizedek, one who isn't necessarily from the line of Aaron and who has unending days. And that his job is to do what Melchizedek did. To bring God and man together. Now, <clears throat> I started out saying, what is the promise? Because all of this is going into what the author of Hebrews is going to tell us next. I'm telling you the backstory, So when you read it, it'll just pop off the page and say, well, of course. That makes perfect sense. You guys are doing a really good argument. Right? Well, <clears throat> the promise to Abraham was that he would be the father of many nations, that there would be, uh, his descendants would be as numerous as the stars are in the sky, and that those descendants would be God's very people. So they're going to share something uh, in common with uh, Abraham, and that they're going to have the very place that Abraham desired as his inheritance that God had given him. And that they would be God's people and he would be their God. Right? Well, he finally has a son. A son of promise. Isaac comes. And he comes when Abraham's 100 years old. So see, there's still hope. <laughs> <laughs> we got hope, yeah. <laughs> Abraham, 100 years old, had a son. And, uh, and Sarah is in her old age. And the son, Isaac, um, is the son of promise, and Abraham loves him because he recognizes that the promise of God to all humanity is coming through Isaac, not through Ishmael. 
And then we read in chapter 22, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, Here I am. He said, Now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Guess where Moriah was? Moriah, right there, where Melchizedek came from. He was a priest of, of Salem. Moriah is that hill where today is the Temple Mount. And right below that was the city of David. So he's saying, go to Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had come. <coughs> on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. So Abraham knows that he's being instructed to take his son, and yet he's telling these guys, not a lie, we're going to return to you. What is he expressing? He's expressing that God has a way, regardless of what would seem right in the world, of fulfilling his promise. And Abraham is a man of faith. He knows that he's coming back with Isaac, even though he's going there to sacrifice him. Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took the burden and put it on his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself, the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. God will provide. So when you hear the story about <coughs> for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's what's going on here. This is the story of Isaac. Isaac was the, the physical you know, boots on the ground expression of this. Jesus is the actual boots on the ground expression of this. So we see this foreshadowed in a promise and the appropriate response is a response of faith. And so he goes on and Abraham uh, says, Then they came to the place that God had told them, and Abraham built the altar and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand took the knife to slay his son. So he goes up to the very edge of the cliff. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Right? Because it wasn't God's intent that man would provide for his own, to sacrifice for his own sin. Rather, God would provide that for him. And then we read about the ram being presented. And, and so the cultic practice that descended from Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, through the 12 sons, is all about this. It's about this promise. That's the promise of God to provide the, the way of atonement. And that it wasn't ever intended that the high priest um, and the blood of bulls and goats would be the means of accomplishing salvation. That's the promise. And so when we read here, 
and I know I'm not talking, and I have two minutes. <laughs> so when it says here, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And if you continue reading through that account in Genesis chapter 22, those are the very words of God. He swears it. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And in the same way it says here in chapter 6, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. This is the oath he's making to you. The heirs of the promise. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. We talked about what that means entering into the veil last week. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That is the hope that is the anchor of our soul. That no matter what's going on in the news, this you know to be true. And he goes on, and I'm just going to read this real quick, and we'll revisit it next week because I have a tendency to do that. <clears throat> it says in chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace without father, and without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. So the argument here is not that Melchizedek was eternal, but the one that he was a type of which one truly would be eternal. Now observe how great a, uh, this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his, the choicest spoils. And those indeed... Uh, of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In other words, what he's doing is he's making a case that um, Abraham, as great a man as he was, there is one greater than him, and it wasn't one that was a priest uh, of the Levitic descent, of Aaronic descent. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, though Abraham, or through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. So the human priesthood is imperfect. They're actually paying tithe through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. 
And this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. In other words, in order for the high priest, the one on the order of Melchizedek, to truly be that high priest, he has to have an indestructible life. Who is that one? Only one in all history ever rose from the dead and stayed alive. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That's the role of the high priest, to draw us near. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. We're going to talk about that better covenant. But he is the high priest of that covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those of the priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. Let's go ahead and stop there. Obviously you can see that the author of Hebrews has packed a lot in to this understanding of the high priest and how Christ, Jesus, is that high priest. And that that is absolutely essential to our salvation. That it isn't possible apart from the priest. Jesus, who is a king, is also a priest. Let's go ahead and, and we'll, I'll leave that with you to ponder this week. Read through that in chapter 7 of Hebrews several times this week. And see if things don't just start popping off the page for you. You got the backstory. We're going to take that argument apart and show how it's absolutely essential as we move forward understanding what God has done through the cultic practice as an expression of what he's done in heaven for us to bring us into his presence. Close here. Lord, we just thank you so much for opportunity to study your word. Lord, we thank you for men like Abraham, who um, was a man of great faith, who believed you that you could raise even Isaac from the dead if he was faithful to you, Lord Jesus. And he looked forward to a home with you in heaven, not uh, a home on this earth, Lord. And we recognize that here we are on this earth and we struggle with the, the needs of our life daily. But, Lord, that you have provision, not just for these needs, but for our true need uh, for you in your home in heaven. Lord, we are your people, and we've been promised a place with you in your very presence for eternity. And, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank, the, thank you that you've made that possible through our high priest, Jesus. 
Lord, we ask that you be with us this day as we struggle through the infirmity of our flesh and that uh, you would help us to uh, walk faithfully. Give us the power of your Holy Spirit to choose the good rather than the evil. Lord, we ask that you would provide for us and protect us. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the security that you give us, the anchor of our soul, the hope that is you, and the way that you've served us through your death on the cross. And Lord, uh, we ask that we would be similarly minded and that we would give our lives daily for you in sacrifice knowing that nothing can separate us from you lord we ask that you would be with bob this morning as he presents your word and lord we just thank you for all this ask that you bring us back next week safely unless you come thank you lord jesus in your name we pray Amen.